0: Hi, I'm Mitch King, and you're listening to the Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Here at Steady State Podcast, we're really interested in backstories, real-life experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. From indoor rowing to flatwater masters to coastal and ocean adventurers, we celebrate you, who represent the global humanity of our sport. Together, we disrupt and expand the narrative about rowing culture. We're your hosts, Tara Morgan.
1: Rachel Friedman. And if you're a first time listener, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks for being here. On the last episode, we introduced you to the Know Where You Row campaign, exploring the spaces and places where we row, which have been and continue to be the lands of the Native peoples. Know Where You Row encourages rowing clubs and boathouses to connect with the history of the waterways and land that they use and the indigenous tribes of the area. If you missed it, listen anytime at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash podcast or anywhere you
0: get podcasts. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Barb, Concept2, and EB5 Investors. Hi, Mitch. How you doing? Nice to meet you. Doing really well. How are you all?
1: Good. Thank you. I know we are all just going to get to know each other by way of ch- chatting. The way that Tara and I like to to do this is, you know, pretend we're all uh, it's after practice and we're having a cup of coffee and we're just, you know, basically shooting the shit
0: about rowing coaching. Sure. And coaching. Awesome. Good. Yeah. Yeah. The basis of our podcast is that we're obsessed with rowing and we want to talk <laughs> about it all the time. <laughs> and <laughs> we started it because there was no rowing. We'd met online during COVID, and we were like, I want to talk about rowing 24 hours a day. How about you? And she was like, sure.
2: <laughs> oh, here we are. <laughs> I have an old meme from when I was still doing college rowing that said the first rule of rowing club is you are only allowed to talk about rowing club.
0: But, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I, My name is Mitchell King. I began coxing in 2018 for Sacramento State Men's Rowing Club in Sacramento, California. I've also coxed for the River City Rowing Club in West Sacramento, California, uh, and when I'm not at the boathouse, I'm often listening to music or playing video games if I'm not also at work.
0: How's Sacramento been this summer? I know it's can be blazing hot there.
2: Honestly, I think that it's been fairly cool. It hasn't been nearly as hot or smoky as it has been in previous years. This is my ninth summer here. The mornings have been kind of muggy out on the water. But, you know, every now and then there's a day where I think, yeah, maybe I don't need a second shirt and then I want the second shirt. So, you know, the habit is to bring the second shirt and then complain about the humidity. <laughs>
1: Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, what waterway does your crew
2: row on? We row on the Sacramento Deepwater Channel. There's a shipping channel that comes up to SAC for there was a rice port out here. Well, they do aggregate and concrete and stuff like that as well. So it's really interesting because you're in the middle of the, you know, Northern California Valley on a waterway and suddenly a 300 foot cargo vessel will go by you while you're in an eight. And that actually happened my first practice with River City. I was in an eight and we were coming back in down the channel and I had not one but two ships to deal with in a channel that's maybe 150 meters wide it was an odd experience certainly not not one I'll ever forget not when I got you know at Sac State on Lake Natoma there's you know you occasionally deal with somebody on a paddleboard and that's about it
0: there in Seattle and Lake Union you have uh seaplanes landing kayaks yeah. University of Washington men's eights going by which is like freight train <laughs> you know, rocket ships, and they are not stopping for your novice freshman rowers at all, (laughs) you know, get the hell out of the way. Or you have like container ships. I mean, it's massive, massive stuff. Yachts, you know, but the seaplanes landing next to you, that's a really fun one.
2: That's That sounds cool. I (laughs) I think it's it's kind of funny because prior to rowing, I had experience sailing because my dad was a sailing instructor and I worked at Lake Natoma in college and my boss said, hey, you're going to learn how to sail. And so I started out on these, you know, small 14 foot boats eventually went to would go to the bay area and bum a ride if I worked the deck you know it's like I'll work lines and and do stuff on the boat if you will just let me tag along so I was very used to being in you know 30 40 50 foot boats on top of the water and the transition from that to rowing was really odd because one it was human powered and and I was in charge and um two you know you go from being you know 6 feet up above the water to 4 inches in the coxswain seat of an eight and it it sometimes it still trips me out a little bit
1: okay so how is your rowing week going? We love to ask this question on a scale of one to 10.
2: Uh, so far, let's see. I, yesterday was a holiday, but I did go out on the water and I got a little bit of erg time in. So far, I'd have to say it's, you know, an eight gearing up to go a little higher, maybe. It's it's not been too bad. We had flat water yesterday. It was nice and calm. No, you know, no wild waves. Uh, nothing coming up over the bow of the four, which was kind of nice. But yeah, so far so good. Are you getting
0: ready for something?
2: We're gearing up for head racing. So we, we've been doing a lot of longer pieces, you know, and a lot a lot of steady state on the weekends, a lot of longer pieces during the week, a little bit of seat racing here and there, mm-hmm. gearing up for, you know, head of the port, head of the American, head of the Charles, head of the Lagoon toward the end of the year, which is one of my favorites. I, I've only been once, but I fell in love with the course the first time down it.
1: Oh, Where is that and what do you love about it?
2: Uh, Head of the Lagoon is in the South Bay. I want to say it's Redwood City. And what I really enjoy about it is, is you're on a waterway, but you're in between a ton of houses. You're, you're literally racing through a neighborhood and there's a lot of really tight turns. It's very, it can get very weird and there's a lot of boats around. You have to go under a few bridges. One of them is kind of tight. And then there's a really, really long turn to port right at the end of the course. So the race I had done just before that was the Head of the American. And I love that race course because I—that's where I learned to row. I I worked there for years and learned to learn to cox there in college. So I was on that course four or five, six days a week for like a year and a half. But what I really enjoyed about it, about the head of the lagoon compared to the head of the American, is the head of the lagoon has a ton of turns. And I had gone in and done racing notes for every thousand meters, what I wanted to do, what I needed to remind the crew of, and then I had also done notes turn by turn. I had like I had Google Earth set up with pins. So I knew where the turns were and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to enter the turn, how I wanted to exit it, you know, what things should look like. I probably overprepared. It was just different to, you know, race past people's front porches. they racing past, you know, water and buoys and water and buoys the whole way. And trees <laughs> and more trees. Yeah. yeah,
0: You should definitely come to Seattle and race Lake Union sometime. It's houseboats, it's parks, it's right in the city. So you're just doing this incredible tour of you know did you see the movie sleepless in seattle like you go by that house and okay yeah yeah and i'm looking at the head of the lagoon on regatta central right now and it's actually a collegiate race and i see uh cal's represented stanford university of washington's been there before so that must be fun to have a masters juniors and collegiate i don't see that very often except like head
2: of the charles it's kind of technical it's in a spot where you wouldn't think there'd be a regatta like you're like who in the heck Why would there be a, you know, why is there a head race in the bay? But it's a really cool venue. And if either of you ever get the chance to come out, you should for sure.
1: Okay. It's got me thinking because we are you mentioned, Terry, you haven't seen a lot of regattas that are like um, high school collegiate and masters. Here, we have a lot of regattas that are masters and juniors and open, but maybe not specifically collegiate. And can I share a memory with you all that I had? Um, No. So, so Mitch. (laughs) So, Mitch, so. I'm a rower. Um, I'm also Cox in size. So, I Cox a whole lot. And this is a bunch of years ago. And I was coxing the head of the Occoquan in Virginia. And I love this course. It's gorgeous. And it might be rose colored glasses looking back now, but I would say this is one of my like best steering situations at a, at a head race. And I remember being right on my point. I'm coming up to a buoy. And I need to squeeze around this buoy, right? And I'm screaming towards it. And there's a crew in front of us. And I'm yelling, give way, starboard, Move over. And it's like this boat will not move over. And we're like charging up on them. They finally move over. And I like squeeze between them and the buoy. And we go screaming by them. And I look over. And the coxswain is like 13. And <laughs> i <laughs> like, I felt so bad. I went screaming. I'm kidding. it's kidding. He's like, oh, my God.
2: I, I don't, I don't think I've had anything like that happen because typically when I've been in the boat, it's been like a master's race or, you know, a master's race with college boats afterwards or um, the head of the American last year, my women's four wound up passing a couple of the men's boats from the event in front of us, which was kind of an, you know, an odd excuse. I'm looking forward to trying to figure out where the rest of the field is. Right. And I'm like, okay, that's another four. All right. I know what boats I'm moving up on because I recognize the blades and I roll up and they're guys. Right. And we're in the last like 1500 meters on the course. and. We check a boom, passed him in his boat. And it's like, all right. Nice. Yeah. And I've
0: actually had the, the privilege of coxing a head race. I'm 5'10". I am not coxing size. And I coxed a boat through a turn like that. And a canoe from a tourist came across the course like this. Did oh, not no. understand how fast we were going. Oh. I said so many expletives that were... <laughs> and I was, you know, and it's also one of those things where you're like telling your rowers like, Eyes in the boat. Do not look out. Whatever you do, do not look out. Like when we went through the Khmat Lake cut and it's supposed to be five boats across is the maximum. And we were five boats across. And it was like, only. Oh, no. made. And I was like, yes. do not look out of the boat. Do not look out of the boat. It's... Oh, man. I, oh, I think man. there's so many great moments. I, I love all these stories. Like there's so many fun moments. And it just makes me so excited to race this fall. Well, we want to move on to our hot seat. To help our listeners get to know our guests, we put you through a lightning round of questions we call the hot seat. Are you ready? Of
2: course. Coxing an eight or bow loader four? Oh, I knew you were going to ask that. I'm going to go. It depends on the race. I'm going to say in a, in a sprint, I'll take a four. In a head race, I'll take an eight.
0: Lake or river? River, to be honest. Cox box or cox orb? Box. Sprint race or a head race? Head race, hands down. Sunglasses or visor slash hat? Sunglasses. Favorite Cox
2: command to give? Favorite command to give. It's it's one I've been trying to work in recently. I I really like if we're passing boats, I have tried to work in drop the hammer, right? Like if we're in the last 500 meters or so and we're passing a boat, I I want the crew to really get after it. The one I call most often is, is pull in high, you know, finish high. Do you call that when you feel like the boat is just getting a little tippy? Yeah, especially yeah. if you know if we're having issues down to one side, and I can feel it all. Like if it's starboards, you know, starboard's full and higher, or ports, and and it's something my my coach does that a lot as well. It's something I picked up from him for sure.
0: Oh, I love that when a coxswain kind of mimics what a coach says because I think it really reinforces for a masters rowers, especially what they're being coached on. What's a favorite course that you've coxed? Favorite course that
2: I've coxed. Well, I already ranted about the head of the lagoon. I, I will say though, I, I think that my favorite course by far, just because it's my home course, is the Lake Natoma, either, either the head of the American or Gold Rush or any sort of sprints. It just, it feels like home because it's where I learned to cox. And anytime I'm there, I'm just happy.
1: For it's, those of us who haven't been to Lake Natoma, can you tell us a little bit about it?
2: It's east of Sacramento, just downstream from Folsom Lake, so it gets all the water from from Folsom. It's very, very, very flat. I can remember in college going out in the, in the eight and looking across the lake and you it looks like a mirror. It's a little windy in the afternoons for some reason, and it comes right down the course most days. But in the mornings, it's gorgeous. You're surrounded by trees and a handful of cliffs and the occasional bald eagle. And it's really quiet. There's no power boats. There's you know maybe, maybe people in a canoe or a kayak here and there. It's a really fun course for for sprint racing. It's really nice because you can see you, it's, there's nothing in the way. I, there's a bridge at the end of the lake. So I just pick my point on the bridge and steer off of that. Okay,
1: nice. next question. Best piece of coxing advice you've ever received?
2: She'll know who she is. A good friend of mine pulled me aside one day after a practice where I was kind of beating myself up. I hadn't quite been, you know, perfect. And I, I was being a little hard on myself and my my buddy pulled me aside and she said, I get that you're a perfectionist. I am the same way. Don't be so hard on yourself. You're doing a great job. It's okay to make mistakes. Um, And I I think that for for any coxswain, especially younger coxswains or or coxswains, you know, I've only got, I've only been in the sport and around the sport for five years and two and a half years of actively coxing because of the pandemic. So I would like to remind myself all the time, you know, I can't be perfect every day. I've, I've got to find something small to work on every single day. One of the things I like about the erg is I can chase tenths of a second in the boat, I try to every practice, am I going to be better at my calls or am I going to do better at docking? How am I going to find something small to improve upon? If you have a perfectionist streak and you remind yourself that there's always really small details to work on in rowing and you pick one each day, you'll do better and you'll feel better about yourself as a coxswain.
0: I say that applies to rowers, too, like especially masters rowers. They're so hard on themselves. You know, they're living these big lives and then they come to rowing and the last thing they want to do is fuck up. You know, the last oh, yeah. thing... The last thing they want to do is be the one that held the boat down or dragged their blade or got the most coaching, you know, like three c three sea three easy, you yeah. know? And and I think that's a really good point. Like they can go into it saying, I'm gonna focus on hand all height today or I'm gonna focus on my grip today or my early square ups or something today. Just yeah. keeping it really simple.
1: Yeah. And that there's always something to work on. No always. matter As long you've been involved in it, you know, both as a cox and as and as a rower. Today, for me, it was quick
0: catches. Like that's oh, all about yeah. the entire practice. Backing it in, baby. Back it in. Yeah. yeah. Woo. That's the hardest thing I learned was backing it in because it mm. just is go. it's counter to what you think you don't want the bottom yeah. of your blade to hit. Feels you know,
1: one to- of my coaches a couple of days ago said, open a trap door. Like, open a trap door and drop your blade in. I was like, that's brilliant. I like, think I'd never heard that before. I've always heard slots of
0: concrete. Yeah. Like, you're in a concrete highway. Like, hit the concrete slot, move the boat. And push a tap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. We got told totally anyway. We have no idea. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, last, last question. Coffee before or after a row?
2: After. If I'm on the water for two hours, I, I don't, you know, an hour or two and it's cold. I don't want coffee because then I'm going to be distracted by the fact that I probably need to go to the restroom and, yeah, you know, right. <laughs> after practice coffee is way better. There should be a t-shirt that says coffee before or after practice. I think that mm-hmm. would be hilarious.
0: That's true. Well, Rachel is a t-shirt company. So boom, boom. Ooh, I do make t-shirts. So I will do
1: that one just for you, Mitch. I <laughs> fun. All right. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for answering our hot seat questions. We all know uh, you a little bit better now. Whoop, whoop. You're
0: welcome. We love what we call the rowing origin story. So what was going on in your life when you
2: started and found Coxing? I love this story just because it's kind of one of those things that I never thought would happen. I, um, I was a first semester graduate student at Sacramento State. I just finished my bachelor's degree. I'd been working at the, the Sac State Aquatic Center. So I, I worked on Lake Natoma for years and over the summers and knew there, there was a rowing program, knew a ton of rowers from colleges up and down the West Coast. And I was walking to my office on campus, and I walked past the Sac State men's tent, and their coach recognized me, and he started asking me, "Hey, man, you know I seen you on the lake. Do you you row?" And I, nah, I don't. You know I don't row. It's like I, I paddleboard, kayak, and stuff like that. And I tried to get out of it too. It's like you know I'm a I'm a first semester graduate student. I, I have a physical disability. I have cerebral palsy. It was like I don't really know that that's a good idea. Like I, you know, I wasn't particularly athletic at the time. I lifted weights because we paid for the gym, but that was it. And he looked at me and he's like, well, you know, I mean, you could still do stuff. You could, you know, maybe be a coxswain. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, I have grad school and an internship and the job and, I, you know, I'm busy and I was trying to politely find my way out. And he looked at me and he said, how much do you weigh? And I didn't realize that he'd put a rake in front of me. So, of course, I stood on it and I said, 114 pounds, why? And he goes, we practice at six. I'll see you tomorrow. I I went in my office and I thought about it. I was like, all right, well, you know, maybe I'll give it a shot. I'll show up and I'll be polite because I don't want to be rude. And if I'm not interested, I'm not interested. I could just say, hey, thanks. I appreciate it. You know, no worries. And uh, the next morning I showed up and we were out at the 2K at Lake Natoma. Um, Anybody who's been there knows exactly where it's at. You're right alongside a big cliff. And he said, hey, can you walk out on a pontoon? And I said, yeah, sure. Why? And he goes, because I want you to cox the eight back into the dock. And so I walked out onto the pontoon, jumped into a Vespoli eight named Legacy and looked at the stroke seat and said, dude, I have no idea what I am doing. Please, dear God, help me. And then that was it. And I, I was hooked. I, I remember it's like you know, Lake Natoma is typically pretty cold water. And so I, I remember thinking to myself, okay, if the water's not cold, this is just a really weird dream. I'm going to be okay. right? So I dumped my hands under the gunnels, splashed some water in my face, and it was ice cold. And I was like, all right, well, this is actually happening. And so we took the boat back to the dock. I talked to coach for a little bit after practice. And I started thinking about how I could make my own schedule for my internship and classes were in the evening and I could figure something out. And When I really sat down and thought about it, I thought, "Okay, I am a person with a disability who has never done sports. I am a first semester graduate student. And at the very least, this will make a really good story someday.
1: Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Breakwater Realty Group. Daydreaming of new lakes, rivers and coastlines to row and play on? Consider a home in Maine. The Breakwater Realty Group, brokered by eXp Realty, can help you find your home away from home or relocate to a new primary home with ease. Connect with the team by visiting BreakwaterRealtyGroup.com and scheduling an
0: obligation-free buying consultation. Maine, it's the way life should be. Listen to more episodes about everything from indoor rowing to rowing across oceans Search the podcast archive at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash podcast or listen on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, could you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. In two, we're back with River City Rowing Club coxswain Mitch King. That's one, two.
2: And I think the thing from rowing that I learned the most was the discipline. The, the amount of attention to detail because I, as a result of rowing and kind of my own personal perfectionism, I managed to make it through my master's degree with a perfect 4.0. Mm-hmm. And I really credit my coach and my teammates for that because it was their, it was that culture of like, we can always do better that made me want to do my best.
1: And that's something that I've talked to a lot of young rowers, like juniors rowers and their parents about, a lot of parents are concerned that their young student athletes are going to be distracted when they go to school by rowing and not do well. And uh, so many student athletes have said, but it keeps me focused. And I get up in the morning and I do my workout and then I, and then I have to set my schedule for the day to get my work done.
0: Yeah, I yeah. think their, their time management really like becomes laser focused because they are home and they are tired and they need to eat 14 pounds of pasta and, yeah. and whatever protein they can get. And then they've got homework to do and they have a two a day and they're kind of go to the weight room at 6 a.m. or something like that. You know? Oh, yeah.
2: Um, I think for me, you know, we'd practice early in the morning, 6 a.m. And I had work in the afternoons for my internship. So I would, I would go to practice. I would go home, take a shower, go to work and then class because I was a graduate student was all at night. And so I'd go to class from six o'clock to nine o'clock and get home 930, you know, study until I fell asleep in my textbooks and then <laughs> wake up and go to practice. Even after I left, even when I took a break from rowing you know, during the pandemic and was you know, working remotely and, and just erging at home, like that attitude of, okay, how many, how many more hours do I have left in the day? What have I still got to get done? That's not to say that I'm at all perfect in my time management, but I do think that kind of that drive, that attention to detail and you know, wanting to get up and go to practice too. Like who, you know, who else gets to get up and go watch the sunrise? And it definitely has had a huge impact on my life and I, I wouldn't trade it for the world.
1: You mentioned earlier on the idea of, I think you said something like seeking out tenths of seconds on the erg. Did you start erging in 2018, 2019 as part of the team, or had you ever been on an erg before that?
2: I had been on one maybe once or twice because my brother rode in high school in in the DC area. I knew what they were and I'd been on one a few times, but I had no idea how to do it. And in 2018, 2019, much to my coach's chagrin, I hopped on an erg because I thought, okay, if the guys are suffering, I'm in a leadership role. I don't have to do what they do. I'm not going to do what they do. You know, I, I, I'm missing, you know, a significant portion of my calf from a surgery, to my left side. I'm not going to be able to keep up with guys, but that doesn't matter. If I can get on an erg and show the guys that I know what it's like to hurt, then I, you know, I thought that that would help me in the boat because I'm not, I not only have a better understanding for what they're doing, they know that I understand what they're doing. I hopped on an erg and started erging. Really, kind of heavily in the spring season that year, because I wanted to do an indoor coxswain's race. And then after grad school, I bought an erg because I just wanted something to do. Because you know, it's still the middle of the pandemic. It was because of rowing that I started it, but I keep at it for personal benefit and for rowing. Because if I, you know, if I sit down and do a 10k, then I know how my athletes hurt. If we're doing erg workouts and our coach sends out the workout, I'll set aside a day during the week from my own routine and sit down and do the workout that coach sent out so that I know what the athletes are going through.
1: I found you on Instagram, I don't know, a little while ago. And one of the things that I've always um, really kind of appreciated about what you post and how you post is your resolve, you know, and you've been um, talking a fair amount about how the erg has changed you and, you know, hitting your big milestones. Can you talk to us a little bit about like getting on the ERG and how that's changed your, your own sense of success and setting goals?
2: For sure. Um, I think that the, the biggest thing for me, the biggest fear of the ERG when I started was my, you know, my physical disability. My legs are kind of tight. My left side's more affected than my right. I walk with a slight limp. You guys ever see me at a regatta, you'll know it's me. Um, probably because I'm really loud, but you'll definitely recognize me. What erging has given me, what rowing in particular has given me is, is a space, and, I, and this goes back to my college coach, Eric Weir, it's given me a space wherein I don't know my limits and neither does anybody else. And rather than being like I was prior to rowing where kind of some of my physical limits were determined by external sources, you know, Doc might say something, my friends might say something, I might say, hey, I want to try such and such an activity, and somebody might go, I don't know, man, that sounds kind of like a bad idea, when I finally just got on an erg. And, and said, forget this, I, I want to do this. I, I started noticing improvements in my balance. And of course, this is anecdotal. You know, My doc and I have talked about it, but I you no know, means you know medical professionals, so your mileage may vary. But my balance got better. My self-confidence got better. I, I started having fewer issues where I was you know, stumbling or falling over my own two feet. I still do, but much less than I did. Before I found rowing, I've, I've just said that I lived like two lives before I found rowing at 25 and since I found rowing or since rowing found me. Where, you know, in the previous life, limits were externalized. Now, I'm in an environment where I don't know what I can do. My athletes don't know what I can do. My coach doesn't know what I can do. He knows probably what he doesn't want me to. But, you know, I can kind of find my own limits and push myself further. And so when I did my first 10K back in the spring, that was a big deal. That was kind of cool. And then in July, when I did my first half marathon on the ERG, I remember at the end of it kind of getting emotional. Because it was something where I I thought to myself, I never thought I would do something like this. If like if you'd have told 25-year-old me right before I went into graduate school, hey, you're gonna become an athlete, I would have looked at you like you had two heads. Um, and, and what it's given me for person for personal drive is I do chase that tenth of a second, right? I, I look at the erg and I'm not trying to PR by 20 seconds, because that's just not sustainable. But if I can PR by a half a second, or by a tenth, or shave a tenth off my average on my erg monitor. You know, every month or so, it gives me an outlet for that perfectionism and, and the fear that the disability caused when I was younger of not being good enough. Right, trying to do things to make up for the disability through external accomplishments. And and I I've described it in the past as kind of achievement hunting. When I was younger, it was like, okay, I did the thing. Am I good enough yet? Right, and now I don't have that as much. Because I have my own outlet. And the wildest thing for me is when I, uh, you know, I do a 10K or, or a half marathon or even a 1K piece. And I realize that, you know, weight adjusted because I'm tiny, I'm k- pacing athletes, you know, I, I can keep up. A- and that's wild because I have a picture of me from when I was about four years old with a pull behind walker because I didn't wasn't walking on my own until about three, three and a half. In my head, I'm still that little kid. Sometimes it's really hard to come to terms with my own physical capabilities. And I, I won't lie. I look at my concept two logbook all the time because I'm just like, am I really up almost three and a half million meters at this in the last three years? Like, what am I doing? Three and a half million meters.
0: That is top Dude. notch. Dang. I did
2: 207,000 meters in the month of in 30 days in the month of August. So what do you do while you do it? Do you listen to something or do you watch? I... <laughs> um i i often listen to i'll often listen to music i listen to a lot of edm or um you know trance stuff like that i've got a massive itunes library of punk rock and i've gone to a ton of punk shows in california because i'm here and i'll turn that on zone out and just go and i may do steady state three by three k or four by three k and just kind of zone out honestly sometimes i just hit shuffle and uh, just see what happens, which I may go from like a hardcore punk song to Mozart. But I also listen to a lot of podcasts and, and watch occasionally. I, um, I'll use the little, the little iPhone mount on top of my erg monitor and I'll just put my phone up there and watch a documentary and just zone out. Because if I, if I spend time focusing on what I'm doing on the erg, if it's a longer piece, I'm going to get stuck, right? I, I've found that I get stuck. Um, so what I try to do on longer pieces is every thousand meters, I'll kind of check in, right? I'll look at where I'm at every thousand meters. And I kind of think of it, as, it I, this is aging myself, but I kind of think of it like a progress bar on an old, like on an old installation window, right? Where you see like you're 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, right? So on a 10K, every, t- every 10%, I check in with myself and I'm like, okay, how am I doing? How much have I got left to go? And when I did the half marathon in July, what I was doing was every 2100 meters or so, I, w- I would look at the erg and I would go, okay, where am I? At? what's my split? Am I on target? Am I where I want to be? You know, if I have to drop my split, how many, how far do I have to drop it? Where can I drop it? And just kind of, you know, only think when I need to think. So only think every 10% or so through the piece. And then the rest of it is just, it's mind numbing repetition. If you want to do a half marathon, you're doing 21,000, just over 21,000 meters. Don't think just row, you know, remember to breathe and remember, it's going to be over before you know it. And I kept, kind of glancing up at the clock I have on the wall through the piece. And I was like, okay, that's 30 minutes. I can do this, right? That's 45 minutes. I can do this. That's for- that's an hour. I can do this, right? That's an hour 30. I'm almost done. I just got to finish. I will say that I-, I was told by a good friend of mine, uh, Ben Williams, who is a coach over at Dallas United, I think. Um, He and I talked about it before I did it because I hadn't really trained for the marathon uh or the half. I just was like, let's just see what happens. Between 15,000 and 17,000 meters in, that's where I hit the wall. And, you know, I I really just kind of had to, you know, take a deep breath and suck it up and keep going because it's not going to hurt any worse.
0: Okay, so we'd like to talk to you about your coxing. Okay. So coxins usually need a few seasons to develop what we call a coxing personality. How would you describe your coxing personality?
2: In the boat, I'm very, very focused. I know what I want. I, I know what I need. But I also like to be collaborative. And I think that that's something that a lot of younger coxswains, certainly myself, when I first started, don't really do. Look to your stroke seat, right? I, I'll have conversations with stroke in the boat. If we're in an eight, I'll have conversations with bow and a bow loader where I'll ask, like, hey, you know, this is what I'm feeling. What do you feel? How is this working? I can't see behind me in a bow loader. So I'll talk to bow and say, hey, what do the handle heights look like? I feel like we're down to port or down to starboard right before the catch, what's going on that I'm not seeing. And in an eight, I encourage my stroke seats to kind of take their own personal responsibility. They're in stroke because they're more experienced than me and they're good athletes. I have athletes who have been rowing a handful of them probably as long as I have been alive. And so when I think, you know, who knows what's going on, it's going to be the person who's the most seasoned. And I like to tell stroke, you cannot complain if you do not tell me what's wrong. So if there's something I haven't caught, you know, if we're rushing the slide and I'm not feeling it, or if we're not coming out together and I haven't, I haven't picked up on it yet because it's dark or I'm not looking at that, tell me and then I can fix it. And then on, on land, I, I like to be friendly with my rowers. I like to get to know everybody. I think one of the things that's really helped me that would help any coxswain is grab a notepad. Um, I keep a little right in the rain notebook and a pen in my fanny pack. And if you have a new athlete, or you're with a new team, or you've been asked to jump in a mixed boat, don't know anybody, ask every single person, why are they rowing? I think of my role in the boat as kind of customer service, especially in masters rowing, because they are paying to be there, right? I need to give them what they need. I need to do my best for them. And in order to do that, I have to know what they need. So I have a habit of, if I have a new athlete, I like to ask them, how long have you been rowing? What gets you in the boat? Why do you wake up at you know, three, four in the morning on a Saturday? to come and get in the boat because I know it's not, I know I'm not the reason you're there. I want to know. I want to know what, what motivates them, right? I have a bunch of notes in my little notebook where who does what and why are they here? That helps me keep their heads in the boat and keep them motivated. Like if I know what motivates a rower, I know how to get them to do what the boat needs. On the water, I'm very focused. I, tr- I try to be very focused. Sometimes I can focus on things that the rest of the boat doesn't really see. I try to be very attentive. For me, my, my number one goal in the boat is always going to be safety. So I might skip making a call or stop what I'm doing because I recognize that something else is going on that requires my attention. But I think ultimately, I've tried to develop a, a coxswain style that's very collaborative. I mentioned race notes earlier, in the, earlier on. And when I make race notes before a race, I'll send them to Stroke. And I'll say, hey, Stroke, you know, what do you think about this? What do you want me to what works for you? What doesn't work for you? If there's a call you don't want me to make, what call is it? If there's a call you want me to make, what is it? If there's something about my style or my tempo or you know, how I speak that you really want me to work on, like I, when I first came back to coxing after a few years out of a boat, I got kind of frantic. I would get really excited and go way too fast. And it wasn't helpful for the rowers because they were trying to decipher what I was doing. And so working with them and asking them, hey, what doesn't work? So that they can come back to me and say, we want you to, be, you know, calm and focused and, you know, think I had one rover describe it like the pilot's voice, right? Like this is your captain speaking, like very calm, very mm-hmm. collected. And then, you know, give them positive feedback too. Like if I call for a change, if I'm asking the athletes to back the blades in a little bit more and kind of reach, get some more length, if I get what I want, they're going to hear from me, hey, good change, right? Like that's what we needed. Thank you. Um, I say thank you a lot in the boat. I've had a number of rowers that have been like, that's weird. And I'm like, well, you did what I asked. I love a coxswain and a coach, actually, in
0: masters rowing, especially that circles back. Like they go on and on and about something. They have a drill to address something. They talk about something. They show the visuals. They do all the great things. But then you're doing it and they're not saying, that's it. And so Rachel always says that's her one of her favorite coxswain calls is to say, that's it. Oh, no. My the, fi- I, you know, or What but, is it? I, if, my favorite thing is there it is. There it is. OK, that's what it is. I would say point nine percent a rower. And for me as the customer, which I love that you said that masters rowers are customers that, you know, having that validation. It's so important for our little fragile egos, our little adult fragile egos. <laughs> we need it. I had a coxswain one time at the head of the Charles and their pre-race thing was, I want you to pack all your worries and all your anxieties, put it in a. Like this, and I'm gonna put it in my pack, pack, and then I'm gonna heave it over the side of the boat at the star line. And it was such a nice visual just to say, Thank you so much. Like, all I gotta do is put my head down a row, you know, just yeah. right in between McDonald's, right? Yeah, you know,
1: Tara, you, um, you mentioned that backpack idea before, and I actually used that the other day at practice with a teammate of mine. It was like oh my week has been so stressful and I was like well just put that in a backpack and toss it overboard and she was like what, what? like she needed ah. a second to process it <laughs> 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 I, try- I tried <laughs> I'll,
2: I like to I kind of take I'll occasionally do something similar like if I know we're all kind of stressed because we've got races coming up or something or I know somebody's going through something when we're leaving the dock I'll say okay we're leaving the dock we're going out to row whatever your stresses are leave them on the dock we'll come back to them in an hour yeah um you know leave it here you're here to row um, yeah. Hit pause. Yeah,
0: yeah. Just switch gears for a sec. Can you just tell us about your disability?
2: Yeah. So, um, so my disability is cerebral palsy. I'm ambulatory. I can't quite remember exactly the diagnosis. It's broken down into different diagnoses and I can't for the life of me remember exactly what mine is. But I so the left side of my body is kind of tight. They not, aren't really sure if I had a stroke at birth or what happened, but I showed up to my own birthday five weeks early, really wrecked the party. <laughs> um, but I, I walk with a limp. I, I wore braces as a kid on my ankles. I, I had to have a couple of surgeries as a kiddo oh too, like a, a heel cord release. And a, the other one was a gastrocnemius recession, I think, where they lengthened out a bunch of tendons. And I'd been in and out of physical therapy my whole life. And one of the things that's really important to me is accessibility and inclusion of individuals with disabilities. Because as a coxswain, You know, I'm not the biggest dude in the boat. I'm not the strongest by any means, but I'm there, and I'm working my butt off to be there. And I train in my on my own outside of practice. And and what's really important to me, I think, from a personal perspective as an athlete and as an individual, I'm dealing with people who don't know about my disability or you know what it's like, or they see that I walk with a limp and they think, hey, what's going on with this guy? A couple of things for that. One, ask because if you don't know, it's okay right? Just, hey, man, I noticed you walked the limp. Do you mind if I ask? No, I don't mind if you ask. I'm okay with that. That doesn't bother me too much. The other thing that's really, really, really important, and I think has only in the last few years, really, I've noticed it more, is assume competence, right? If you run into someone who has a physical disability, assume as a coach or as a teammate or as a friend, assume they know how to do a thing, right? Or assume that they are capable of it until they tell you, hey, I can't, or they've demonstrated you know, hey, this doesn't work, and and that's for me, right? Like I, I love that I have a group of athletes who, uh, you know, back in February were like, hey, we're gonna go snowshoeing, and let's go. And rather than saying, hey, you know, Mitch, I don't think that's a good idea, or I don't really know if you should do that, they just let me tag along, and we did like seven miles up in the mountains in snowshoes, and it was my first time in snowshoes. And the very next morning, I was on an urgent practice, and so you know, I was in all kinds of pain. But I did it and I was able to do it because the people that I'm around don't kid glove me. They all give me plenty of room to figure out what I can and can't do, you know, enough rope to hurt myself with. And, and they're there to help out if I do, you know, if I do get myself into trouble. But I, I think that when it comes to disability in public, one of my big things, my handwriting is terrible. And I had an instance at a regatta uh, where I was asked to sign my name for medals for my boat. And I was really stoked because it was my first like gold medal. I was really pumped. Was like, I'm going to get the medals for the boat. And so I walked over and I was asked to write my name down for him. And I did, hey, print your name for the medals. I wrote my name down as best I could. And it still kind of looked like cursive because my fine motor skills are shot because of my cerebral palsy. The, the lady behind the counter kind of freaked out and went, that's not print. I said, right, print. And it was one of those moments where I'm interacting with someone in public who, who doesn't know. right. She has no idea. It felt more personal than it was. And and honestly, biggest thing you can do, you know, in, in a situation like that, for me, I had to like, do I pick the fight or do I walk away? You know, and I, I grabbed the medals and, and walked away and took it back to my boat. But I, I think that, you know, when it comes to sports, right, I don't know what I can do. I didn't think that I would ever be a part of a college athletic club, ever go into master's rowing, ever, you know, be a coxswain. I never thought this would happen, you know, interviewing with you all. I, I think that, anything we can do to encourage accessibility and encourage people to, to be friendly and accepting. For me, the verbiage around it gets kind of weird. Like when people say that I'm differently abled, I'm like, no, I, I have a disability. There are things that I cannot do and I am not able to do. Ergo, I am disabled. Say the word, be upfront about it and confront the reality because one of the issues that I've run into is I am totally comfortable referring to myself as disabled because I, I am. Different people have different opinions on this. I'm not saying I'm an authority figure by any means. But if I'm interacting with an athlete or I'm interacting with a coach or a competitor or, you know, I'm making friends with somebody and somebody says, well, Ben, you know, I don't see you as disabled. I, I think to me that's kind of dismissive hmm. because I understand that it's meant as, as like a, hey, I see you as a capable person and I see you as somebody who really can do all these things because I've seen you do them." I get that. That's all right. The intent, I understand. The problem is it comes across as though disability is a bad thing or that disability is inherently less than, or when people say stuff like you're too fit to be disabled or you're too handsome to be disabled or whatever, it makes it sound as though being disabled is somehow less than. And I think that that really defeats the purpose because as a person with a disability, I can't turn it off, right? Don't get me wrong. I would love to not be in pain. Like my muscles are constantly tight. I stretch for like a half hour to 45 minutes every single day. My hams are always really tight. I would love to not have to deal with it but but I don't have that luxury and so in conversation with people with disabilities it's from my perspective very beneficial to address it right and just say okay look I know you you have limitations you have a disability how can I help right what can I do because it's it's very it feels very dehumanizing to have someone suggest that they don't see you as disabled or that they don't see you as as capable or if they use a euphemism like handy capable or differently abled, that just seems like it doesn't benefit me because it doesn't change what I actually am. You're just moving the goalpost, right? You've changed the definition or you're using a different word, but it still means the same thing. I mean, I openly, you know, my nickname is Gimpy and, and part of it is an icebreaker when I meet a new group of people and I did this with my current crew. When I showed up on the first day, I said, hey, my name is Mitch, but my buddies call me Gimpy. And it's an icebreaker to see who's going to who's going to panic, right? Who's going to get offended on my behalf? It's it's really it's led to some interesting conversations because I've introduced myself that way or asked someone to call me that because I want to normalize my disability. So the best way to do it is to just say, hey, this is me. And when I've done that in some instances, not often, but occasionally somebody will say, I think that's really offensive or I think the way Mm -hmm. you handle your disability is really offensive. And I always look at them and ask to whom? The able-bodied person across from me or to the person who has the disability that's saying it? You know, I don't want to step on any toes. Again, I'm not an authority figure by any means on it. Um, I have friends who disagree with me that are also disabled. But I think that the the best thing we can do as coxswains or athletes or coaches or friends is just confront reality because your friend is already dealing with it. So if if you decide not to, that's kind of alienating. You know what I mean? We
0: absolutely need to introduce you to Sophie Grant Brown from the UK. (laughs) So Sophie Grant Brown's email is spasticatedduck, and she is hilarious. And she's an adaptive brower over in the UK competing at a very high level. She just did her first half marathon in a single. She just posted about it. But we have to introduce you to because she is just as kind of forthcoming, maybe a little irreverent. Just yeah. really loves to challenge people's assumptions. You know, she's just really yeah. We should introduce you to
1: <laughs> yeah, and she also has CP. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking a couple different things here. I I really don't talk about this a whole lot, and this is I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole here. But um, when you're talking about you know the nickname Gimpy, it's actually something that some people used to call me when I was in like junior high, high school. Oh, um, I actually had a leg length discrepancy and had surgery to correct that when I was a teen. And so there's kind of all this stuff associated with that. And to this day, I still have a limp and my right leg is much smaller than my left one. And I've never kind of put myself in the category of disabled, but I certainly am on a line where some people say that I should just row adaptive or I could row adaptive. The, the other thing that you mentioned about people saying, well, I don't see you as disabled or I don't think of you as disabled,
0: in a way that's really dismissing a big part of who you are and what makes you who you are. Yeah. And and I'm a coach and a founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing. We've done adaptive rowing for the last 10 plus years here in the Northwest. Uh, we specialize in masters adaptive rowing. And a couple of things I've always taken away is that a disability is that person's story. You know, I've had so many conversations with people when I've said, oh, I work with people who have hemiplegia, paraplegia, tetraplegia, quadriplegia, and they immediately think Christopher Reeve. They automatically go to this very popularized notion, which also indicates that disability is something to overcome. It's not. It's just something that exists. It's part of the culture. It's part of life. And as a coach and a founder of that kind of organization... It was really eye-opening to me. I learned so much. And one of the things that I felt was really important was to not put my athletes in a position to be ambassadors for them, for the entire disability community. And you've said a number of times, I'm not the authority. I'm not the authority. And it isn't, it is a, a difficult position to be put in, especially when you have public platforms and you are in a public space to not take on the role of like, I will educate everyone about inclusion and advocacy. So. Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, I think so. Briefly, you mentioned the kind of the social aspect of it and what people have been socialized to. And I, when I mentioned that I have cerebral palsy, if someone has not met me, once in a while, not often, but once in a while, I'll meet somebody and they'll say, oh, I was expecting to see someone in a wheelchair because you have cerebral palsy. And a lot of that comes from how they've been socialized to disability because disability is a spectrum, right? I am ambulatory and I erg way too much. Some of my friends who have CP are in wheelchairs or are on, on canes or crutches. I'm different, but that's indicative of the difference in disability because I'm ambulatory and I walk with a limp and I'm up and about and I'm doing stuff. One of the ones that I get most often is comparisons to Forrest Gump, which is hard to deal with because on the one hand, like if I mentioned that I wore braces and somebody says, oh, just like Forrest Gump, like that's how they've been socialized to disability. And I can't get mad at them for their socialization to a concept, right? If they had, didn't grow up with a friend like me, But they've seen that, and that's how they make the connection. I can't get angry with them. That's a dramatization from a fictional character. You know, I'm a real person. But I think that when it comes to being an ambassador, I I think that a lot of people with disabilities, you know, several of my friends, we kind of feel that we wind up in this position without choosing to be. You know, it's just kind of a fact of life. I wind up explaining to people what my disability is if they ask. I wind up demonstrating to people what I am capable of doing. I don't mind being an ambassador because I can articulate things and communicate. And I, I I should use that capability to help better the situation for others who can. What I do not like at all is the idea of being called an inspiration. Because I don't really do anything to inspire others, right? In my mind, everything that I do is is my way of dealing with it. Right. Like the reason I work out the reason I erg as much as I do is because I enjoy it, but also because it's it's kind of a way to cope. It's kind of a way to, you know, st- to stick up a finger to everyone who said you can't do this, that or the other thing, and just do it. And it's, you know, it can be really kind of rewarding to sit back and think of how far I have come physically in my own journey and versus where people thought I would wind up or where I was told I would wind up and just think if someone finds what I'm doing to be inspiring, sure, fine. If you tell me I am an inspiration, that kind of feels dehumanizing in, in a similar way to the stuff we spoke about earlier with the different euphemisms, it feels very dehumanizing because I'm not setting out to necessarily be an ambassador or necessarily be an inspiration. If you decide, hey, I listen to steady state Mitch said he urged 200 kilometers in the month of August. I want to urge 200 kilometers. Great, go for it, get after it. Remember that you know when you deal with people who have disabilities, they're human beings. And I think that it's fair to say that many of us, you know, I can certainly speak for myself, don't necessarily want to have the burden of being a disabled person or or being an inspiration or because then you feel all this extra weight right when we tokenize individuals with disabilities are, are we look at an athlete who's doing inclusive rowing or doing what I do and we say that person's an inspiration that person's inspiring you know I look at what they're doing they're disabled and I'm physically able you know what's my excuse and i I get that I've said that to people right like I've Given people a hard time, friends of mine a hard time, or my buddies are like, I just don't understand how you do it. And I'm like, you know, think about how much further you could go. Like, that's one way to kind of do it. It's like, hey, man, you know, I'm doing this. Think about how much further you can go because both your legs work better than mine. I mean, heck, I've made a call that the Sac State guys who were in the boat still remember. It was my first head race in an eight, 1,500 meters to go. And I the boat was dying out. And I said, guys, God gave you legs that work. I expect you to use them. And every single one of those men to this day will tell you that that call. And Sometimes it's advantageous, but I think that being an ambassador is kind of a natural byproduct of the situation I find myself in, right? And I have to deal with it as it is. I can't shirk my responsibilities because it's a disservice to others. I, I have an athlete, several athletes whom I've spoken with in the last year or so, and I've told them, "Hey, thank you for treating me like a human being. You know, thank you for just seeing me as a person and and not." kid loving me or looking at me when I hop on the erg when we're doing some ridiculous workout and, and saying, I don't know that that's a good idea. You know, but just like letting me be me. I'm really glad that you found that at River City Rowing. It sounds like a great group of people. Oh, they're a great group of people. I, I am. I love every single one of my athletes. I, I'm very, very fortunate to have them.
0: What it, what would you say your, your pitch for rowing is? If you were out at a coffee shop and you saw someone and they said, hi, you know, I need to find community and they are of of all ability, right? Like, like we just look at the whole spectrum. Yeah. Like, well, What would your pitch for rowing be?
2: I, I would say it, it's an opportunity to find how hard you can push yourself. It, it's an opportunity to surprise yourself. And I, I think I surprise myself every day. I am constantly amazed that I get to get up early in the morning, get in a boat, watch the sunrise with a handful of my best friends, whom to me have become my family. I, it, it's, it really is a place where when you're in it, when you're rowing, when you're urging and you're working out, You don't think a whole lot of it. And then, you know, midway through the week on a day where you don't have practice, you kind of sit down and think about where you were a couple of years ago and you go, Jesus, how did I get here? It's an opportunity to push yourself. That's really the way I would sell it. It's absolutely an opportunity to find out what you can do.
1: You talked earlier about what's coming up next in your full head racing season. Are you going to head of the Charles? I don't
2: know yet. I'd (laughs) like to. I, I really want to go. I've had a bunch of friends that have raced um, in the past. I'm stoked. I've you know studied the course a ton, watched footage a bunch. I really want to go to the head of the Charles because I, I kind of want to get to have that atmosphere because my experience with rowing hasn't really been large crowds and loud noises and spectator sports. And of course, anybody would want to go. I, I don't think you could talk to a single athlete that I know or anybody in my boathouse or any of my friends in other boathouses in Northern California where if you asked them, hey, do you want to go? I don't think any of them would be like, nah. I, I think I'm okay. I think every single one of them would asked privately would say, yeah, I want to go. So we'll see.
0: Well, Rachel's been a coxswain on the course many times, and I got the privilege of rowing in a boat coxed by her last fall, and we'll do it again this fall. And it is a spectacle that is not to be missed. It's just, it's just one of the most fun things in the world. So I hope you can. I hope you get to go. And
1: Thanks. if you get to go, let us know. We'd love to meet up with you there.
0: Oh well, yeah, for yeah. sure. Oh heck yeah! We work the whole weekend. We work media the whole weekend. Awesome! Yeah,
2: I'll I'll uh, I'll show up and give you guys my coffee shop pitch.
0: <laughs> oh, perfect!
1: Awesome. <laughs> well, Mitch, thank you so much for taking so much time to chat with us today. This has been awesome.
0: This has been really fun, I kind of don't want it to end.
2: Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm really happy to talk about disability in sports and kind of advocacy as well, because, you know, like we mentioned, there's a whole bunch of mystique around like, what does it mean to be disabled? And if your only socialization is through mass media and, you know, you've seen Breaking Bad, so you see cerebral palsy and think crutches or you see Forrest Gump and you think person walks with a limp is probably mentally handicapped. You know, it's nice to have that platform. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. You're
1: welcome. This has been awesome to talk with you, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in Boston. Yeah, I hope so. To see photos of Mitch and get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Thanks to a special group of our patrons, Jill M, Bobby K, Dave H, Arthur W, Lenore A, Chelsea V, Stephanie M, KCD, and Alan M, whose support helps make this podcast possible. Join our team for as little as five dollars a month at SteadyStateNetwork.com
0: slash Patreon. The State podcast is sponsored in part by Rosource, providing creative design services for clubs, organizations, and regattas. Get the design help you need at RowSource.com. Steady State
1: is more than a podcast. We get together on Instagram Live for coffee chat every Friday morning at eight AM West, eleven East. We bring that post practice Coffee with Teammates vibe online to talk with the community about all things rowing. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. Get more info when you
0: subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter. This episode was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Tara
1: provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our
0: website, social media, and e-newsletter. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience.
1: Tara is based on Dashon Island, Washington. She founded Seize the Oar Foundation in 2010, is fanatic about coaching Learn to Row, and
0: believes the pair is the best boat. Rachel is a longtime rower, coach, and coxswain in Washington, D.C. She's the owner of Row Source and is a tiny bit squeamish about
1: sculling. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Steady State Network, Seize the Ore, and Source. Coming up on the next episode, we go back to school with Lindsay Dare Shoup. In 2002, she reluctantly walked on at the University of Virginia. Within a year, she became an NCAA Division I All American. In four years, she broke a world record and earned her first world championship. Within six years, her hard work manifested a gold medal at the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics. Today, she seeks to help others remove self-imposed limitations. And this fall, 20 years after it all began, the author of Better Great Than Never returns to UVA as an assistant rowing coach, paying it forward. Catch new episodes of Steady State Podcast every other weekend, anywhere you get podcasts. In two way enough,
0: that's one, two. Just a sidebar. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were like, I went to Maine. Oh, oh, she was in the, getting her. She goes, oh, my God. She's like, I literally called my husband and was like, I could live here. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> breakwater realty group. <laughs> I just like regard Realty group.com called here obligation free <laughs> buying consultation <laughs> he was like really I'm like yes Matt Friedman awesome faith yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh
1: yeah. so I need to, I need to ask because I went from rowing to sailing and the confusion about port and starboard was so frustrating like you're facing one direction is port starboard, and then all of a sudden you're moving the opposite
2: direction. And you're like,
0: why can't I remember? But he's a cox, and so he's yeah, the same But yeah, I'm direction. only a cox, so it's yeah. always
2: been the same. I mean, well, I've sculled a little bit, but yeah, I I think the, the one that gets me with port and starboard is, is lights. Um, in the winter, you know, and I've done it long enough that I should know better. Um, and in the winter, every now and then, when it starts getting dark, I'll put the bow line on backwards, and my coach will, you know cruise over in the launch and fix it, kind of give me a look, you know. The way I remember it though, um, is left is least was what I was taught. So red is red has fewer letters. So I know red is going to go on the left-hand side of the boat. Um, which is sounds easy, but when it's, you know, five in the morning, you're barely awake and the boat's upside down in racks, it's hard to, you know, you got to remember what direction is, where does it go? So,
0: yeah, I was, we always did. We cheated. We had red stickers, okay. at least at the club I have now. There's red stickers on everything. Even the riggers, there's yeah. red. Um, mm. Just like red um, electrical tape. Yeah. Like one thing of red electrical tape. And then, um, but on my learn to row students, I would actually write port and starboard on their True. hands. So that when they row, it's would be like, okay, what are we doing? You know, super cute. I'd be like, get my Sharpie. It works. <laughs>